Life is busy, especially if you've got a very important podcast to host. If you want fewer trips to the grocery store and a freezer full of meat, get ButcherBox. They've got incredible deals on high-quality meat and seafood, and it's delivered right to your door. You can customise your ButcherBox plan, and they'll throw in recipes, tips, guides, and hacks. ButcherBox meat is humanely raised. There are no antibiotics or added hormones, so you can choose from grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood. And shipping is 100% free. Sign up at butcherbox.com underworld and use the code underworld to get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. That's butcherbox.com underworld and the code underworld to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Punta del Este, Uruguay, in the summer of 2017. If you've never heard of it, it's a beautiful seaside city where South America's rich and elite go on vacation or keep villas. One of these rich and elite gentlemen, a model citizen who seems to have a soybean business and deal real estate, has popped up on the radar of the Italian police. He generally keeps a pretty low profile, except for the occasional birthday blow-off for his daughter. But he's made the mistake of registering that daughter at a school under her own name. And this has sent alarm bells ringing all over the world. See, that man's been wanted in Italy for nearly 25 years. And not only just wanted, but like top three or four for fugitives for a country with no shortage of global criminal power players. And he happens to be a major player near the top of the food chain in the feared Andrangheta criminal organization based in Calabria, but operating on damn near every continent all over the world. The Andrangheta started as a secretive defense militia in the mountains of Calabria, Italy, centuries ago. That's the region in Italy right above Sicily, where the mafia originated. They fought off pirates and raiders, but in the 20th century, morphed into a criminal organization that made it big on kidnapping and ransom before in later years turning to what else? Cocaine. And this guy, the police are hunting, named Rocco Mortabitu, once dubbed the Cocaine King of Milan, is one of the guys who helped get them big into the game. A criminal prodigy, he was organizing massive cocaine deals between the world's most powerful organized crime groups before he was 30, sitting down with the Cali Cartel, the Sicilian Mafia, and representing the Andrangheta. He was international, and he helped turn the Andrangheta into Europe's biggest cocaine importer, controlling 80% of the market at times. He's been on the run, though, for years, because despite the slick demeanor, charm, double-breasted suits, and ability to cut deals with anyone, he got a little too much attention, then fled for South America. Said Nicola Mora, head of the Italian Parliament's Anti-Mafia Commission, quote, he was a major architect in the internationalization of the crime gangs and became the king of cocaine brokers. And his rise over the last 30 years coincides with the rise of the Andrangheta becoming the most powerful criminal organization in Italy, and some would say the world, operating from Melbourne to Switzerland to Toronto to Brazil. 
So when the Italian and Uruguayan police finally nab him in early September that year in a hotel in Montevideo, Uruguay, it's a big deal. But the thing is, the guy is just too slick and too well-connected, and he's not going to stay locked up for long. This is the Underworld Podcast. Welcome back to the Underworld Podcast, the podcast where every week, two journalists who have reported all over, myself, Danny Golds, and usually Sean Williams, take the listener on a journey through international organized crime. Uh, as always, you can get bonus episodes and support us at patreon.com slash the world podcast, where for $5, you get even more content and great interviews and all that sort of stuff. This week, I am actually not joined by Sean. I am joined by a real Italian who's going to pronounce things correctly for the first time ever on this podcast. You will hear Italian words pronounced correctly. That is Antonio Talia, and he is Calabrian. He's going to tell us all about the Indrangheta. Um, If you guys don't know, they're probably, I mean, I would say the most powerful organized crime organization in the world at this moment, but Antonio is really going to get into the nitty gritty of it all and especially what it's like growing up in that area. So Antonio, Introduce yourself, tell us where everyone can find you, and give us a bit of your background. Uh, hello, uh, I'm very glad to be here at the Underworld Podcast. My name is Antonio Italia, I'm an Italian journalist. Um, I was born and raised in uh, Calabria, uh, which unfortunately is uh, also the cradle of, uh, of the Ndrangheta. Uh, I've been working uh, as a foreign correspondent, but I've of course, I've been working also as a crime reporter, and uh, uh, I've been reporting about the Ndrangheta, especially about uh, its uh, um, ramifications and its branches across the world. I've written a book which is called uh, Statale 106. It's the name of uh, a road uh, in Calabria that uh, uh, leads to many villages haunted by the Ndrangheta, and the book has been translated so far in four languages. Yeah, so let's get that in. Is it in English? Uh, it could be translated as uh, uh, Route 106. Okay, well, let's get it. Uh, let's get it done. Let's get an English version out here because the people, uh, you know, these books sell well, man. These books, uh, you know, you could be the next uh, Gamora. We need that. We need that for you right now. <laughs> but um, you were telling me about these these three snapshots, I think, these three kind of photos and in and, and situations that really represent the Ndrangheta and, and everything going on, especially about uh, Rocco Morbito, who you're going to tell us all about, one of the most powerful crime lords ever. So yeah. can you kind of uh, paint that paint that picture for us? Yes. Uh, so imagine in the archives of various crime agencies scattered across several nations, like three snapshots taken between two continents in a span of more than 40 years. So we have our first picture taken at the beginning of the 80s, and this is the mugshot of a young Caucasian man in his uh, mid-20s. He has curly hair, simple clothes, and uh, his dark eyes are staring at the camera. And this picture was taken in a local station of the Carabinieri in Reggio Calabria, Italy. And then we have a second picture, uh, dates back to December the 15th, 1994, and shows a group of six elegant men discussing outside a club somewhere in the center of Milan. None of them seems aware to be under surveillance. Four are identified as dangerous members of the Cali cartel from Colombia. The fifth is Domenico Mollica, a well-known affiliate 
to the Drangheta, the Calabrian mob. But the sixth man, a 30-something in a dapper coat, is unknown to the Milanese investigators, at least at the moment. And then the third photo was shot on September the 2nd, 2017, in Montevideo, Uruguay, and shows a man in handcuffs sitting on a bed of a luxury hotel. His hair is grey, he has gained some weight, but a certain swagger in his eyes leaves little doubt about his true identity. It is the same man portrayed in the mugshot in Calabria in the 80s and outside the cafe in Milan in the 90s. And although his passport bears the name of a one Francisco Capelletto Souza, Brazilian citizen, the joint team between the police of Uruguay, Argentina and Italy is fully aware of his true identity because the man arrested in 2017 is Rocco Morabito, a.k.a. Utamunga, a high-ranking member of the Ndrangheta and one of the most dangerous cocaine brokers of the world. Now, these three pictures alone encompass the complex, multilayered history of the Ndrangheta, an organization who was once considered a second-rate Italian mafia, and now it is one of the most powerful crime syndicates in the world. Yeah, I think that's the thing about the Andrangheta, right? Like people know about the Sicilian mafia, obviously pop culture for, for decades, you know, generations have done stories on them and we had a heavy Sicilian population in, in America. And then we also know now about the Camorra, right? Because of the book Camorra and the TV shows and the movies. So the Andrangheta kind of slips, slips below that. And if you guys don't know where Calabria is, it's right above Sicily. And uh, they're extremely powerful. I mean, we see them mentioned now... Um, more than in international crime, you know, reportage, in, in police, Interpol, all that, they get mentioned as really being global on a scale that I don't think you see the other Italian mafias in right now. But they're also kind of mysterious, right? We don't know a lot about them, I would say, compared to the other Italian organized crime groups. So can you kind of, you know, tell us a bit more about them? Yes, you're right, Danny. Uh, they are a bit more mysterious, even if uh, in the last decade, I would say, the investigators have managed to uh, uncover uh, more and more. But the thing is, uh, let's start from the word. The word itself, drangheta, is mysterious. Uh, we have to keep in mind that we cannot understand the drangheta if we don't understand where the drangheta was born. So we are in Calabria, as you mentioned, which is the southernmost region of continental Italy. It's just in front of Sicily. If uh, Italy looks like a boot, Calabria is the point of the boot. And Calabria lies between two seas, and the word Drangheta comes from the east coast, which is on the Ionian Sea, so we are facing Greece. And the term itself, Drangheta, might come from Greek, because it's Andros Agathia, which means something like the virtue of the brave man. Now, there are many speculations and legends about the foundation of the organization Drangheta, but one educated guess suggests to consider the shape of these areas of Calabria. You have the sea on one side and the Aspromonte on the other. And Aspromonte is basically the most impenetrable, secluded and wild chain of mountains in Western Europe. And uh, between the 16th and the 17th century, when pirates from the other side of the sea, from Turkey or other areas of the Ottoman Empire, systematically raided the East Coast, the Calabrians, 
formed a secret militia of self-defense. The strategy was simple and lethal because each village was split in two. There was a group of houses lying by the sea and another group of houses hidden in the mountains. And even today, if you drive across the East Coast, across the Route 106, which is uh, the, the place where my book is settled, uh, you see that every village has two versions, two versions, which is Marina and Superiore. One version of the village lies by the sea, the other one lies in the mountains. So when the pirates approached to raid and loot the villages by the sea, the men from the secret militias loot them in the hills and the mountains, where they had a better knowledge of the terrain and could easily ambush the invaders. These secret societies, these secret militias, with a code of silence and blood and oaths and a very complicated structure, survived across the centuries to become a rebel force against the aristocracy, then against the central states of Italy, and then eventually, in modern times, they turned into a crime syndicate, which is Andrangheta. I mean, it's like, you know, learning the history of how these groups, um, the Italian groups, other groups as well, sort of came about from stuff that happened centuries ago, right? Whether it's the Sicilian mafia in Orange Groves or the banditry in Naples and then, you know, other groups too, Chinese triads. I mean, it's kind of fascinating to see how it develops from these sort of uh, like secret protective societies and, and emerges from that and then gets into crime. Um, but it's interesting too about the houses. You said I have a, I have a friend whose family is Greek and they, she would always tell me the same thing that they had like, you know, the house down by the water and then the house down up in the mountains for when raiders came. And that was just the way it was, you know, in these sort of like Mediterranean areas where people were constantly shipping and traveling through. Um, but now because of that, right, we have the emergence of this colossal criminal organization and powerful people like like Rocco Morbito. Can you tell us a bit more about, about who he was? Yes. Uh, well, Rocco Morabito is somehow one of the purest examples of uh, uh, Andrangetista, which, which is a main a man of the Andrangheta. Uh, he is one of the purest examples I can think of because he was born in uh, Africo Nuovo, which is a village with a complicated history of poverty and uh, rebellion and a high rate of affiliates to the Drangheta. And I know this place very well because uh, uh, although I was born in Reggio Calabria, which is the capital region, uh, the origins of my own family trace back to the same village, to Africo Nuovo. So I understand Whoa. the dialects and the culture somehow. Um, Rocco Morabito was born in 1966 in a well-known Drangheta clan. Uh, the family is called uh, Morabito Palamara Bruzzaniti crime family. And he started his criminal career at a very young age. Uh, his nickname is uh, Utamunga uh, and refers to uh, DKW Munga, which is an uh, old German SUV he used to drive on the streets of Aspromonte. And he knew the streets of Aspromonte, these secluded valleys, very well. And uh, um, he knew even the most hidden paths across these mountains since he was a young boy. And this brings us to a specific kind of crime that enriched the Drangheta between the 70s and the 80s, which is the kidnappings. Yeah, I want, I want to get to that in a minute, but I just have a question about the Andrangheta and how it works. Is it like a, 
like a hierarchy where you know there's one person at the top or, or a group at the top and then everything goes down or is it like a collective name like like Kamora where there's like a bunch of different competing clans uh i will say that there's something uh between the two uh because you don't have a capo di tutti capi okay mm -hmm. uh, you don't have a one leader of andrangheta but you have something that is called the crimine The crimine is uh, uh, a circle of uh, about uh, 10 or 12 people uh, which are elected uh, and uh, they stay in their place uh, for uh, uh, almost a year. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are the highest ranking members of the Ndrangheta. But they do not take uh operational decisions okay what they have to do is to um uh watch over the interpretations of the rules uh they are some sort of uh, um uh, i would say they are something like the supreme card of the drangheta hmm? yeah um uh, so If something doesn't work, if rules are not respected, the criminal will act. Otherwise, every family can do uh, their own business within their own area, which is called uh, a locale. Uh, and the, the, the criminal, mm, the so-called supreme court of, uh, of the drangheta uh, can only apply the rules when somebody doesn't respect the rules otherwise they do not uh, tell to each family how to drive the business what they do is to collect the money for all the people that are in prison because this is very important every affiliate will receive every affiliate and every affiliate's family will receive support from the criminal from the organization that's fascinating know, like it, yeah it is fascinating and unfortunately it works because then uh, uh, every family has uh, a very uh, hierarchical structure on the inside but maybe we will get more into deep of that later if you want to Yeah, but just the idea of this Supreme Court, I guess it's how a lot of families work, but it's a Supreme Court and the only thing they do, they don't tell you how to make your money or do anything else. They just make sure that you abide by the code. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. And, they, and they collect yeah. the money at the end of the year to support the other families. Yeah. On the Jordan Harbinger Show, you'll hear amazing stories from people that have lived them, from spies to CEOs, even an undercover agent who infiltrated the Gambino crime family. You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show with Jack Garcia, who did just that. My career was 24 out of 26 years was solely dedicated working undercover. I walk in, I'm in the bar. Now there's a barmaid there, good looking young lady. She's serving me drink. Hey, what would you like? I usually, my drink was, give me a kettle, one martini, three olives, glass of water on the side. I finish the drink, the guys come in, I'm gonna go, go in my pocket, take out the big wad of money, Bam, I give her $100. If you're with the mob, I say, hey, Jordan, you're on record with us. That means we protect you. Nobody could shake you down. We could shake you down, but you're on record with us. For more on how Jack became so trusted in the highest levels of the Gambino organization, check out episode 392 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. Every town has a dark side. 
This is Andrew Fitzgerald from the Everytown Podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and mysterious true crime stories, most of which you've never heard of. Stories like the bizarre disappearance of Tyler Davis in Columbus, Ohio, a 29-year-old father trying to find his way back to his hotel when he disappeared and was never heard from again, and Elizabeth Shelf from Lugoff, South Carolina, who was abducted from her driveway by a madman and taken to his underground bunker in the woods. And we give you all the details you're interested in hearing about without any fluff or fillers, because ain't nobody got time for that. We cover everything from psychopaths to poltergeists, so go check out the Everytown podcast, because every town, no matter how nice it may seem, has a dark side. So you were saying kidnapping, and, and some investigators have claimed that the wealth of the Andrangheta is based upon kidnapping. Can you kind of explain that a little bit more? Yes, uh, because uh, mm, they claim that the wealth of Drangata is based upon kidnappings because this was like the first phase uh, of the Drangata somehow. The power of the Drangata today, today lies on cocaine, mm? but the Drangata entered into the cocaine trade with the money they acquired through kidnappings. And it all started in the 70s. Uh, they would kidnap the son or the daughter of some rich local, or they perceived as rich, which might be, you know, the son of a local lawyer or the doctor. And they held him or her in Aspromonte until a ransom was paid. So then they realized that Aspromonte was even more secluded for people and investigators from other regions. So in the 80s, they expanded the business by kidnapping real riches, not people from Calabria, but like the shones of important business dynasties from the north of Italy. And they even kidnapped uh, Paul Getty III, um, which is, he was the shone of the Getty family. Uh, yeah, 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 it's a famous story. Yeah. It's a famous story. And if yeah. today you go to Bovalino, which is a village on the east coast of Calabria, very close to the villages of uh, San Luca and Plati, which are somehow the birthplace of Nadrangheta, there's a certain neighborhood dubbed, uh, I mean, there, of course, is not written on the wall, but everybody calls it like that. This neighborhood is called Paul Getty Avenue because everybody knows that it was entirely built with the money from the Paul Getty ransom. So uh, this season was uh, seriously a nightmare. Uh, I was like five years old, uh, between like five years old and 10 years old. Uh, they called it the season of kidnappings. And it was a nightmare for honest Calabrians and for the rest of Italy. Because uh, in the 80s, Aspromonte was like synonymous with kidnappings and griefs. And members of the victims' families chained themselves to walls and trees to protest and ask for the freedom of their sons and daughters. Yeah, I mean, Italy was just crazy in the 70s and 80s with, you know, the mafia wars in Sicily and, and all that. It's just, uh, what a wild time. And and I honestly did not know much about these kidnappings, so it's really fascinating to hear. Can you kind of give us like a brief rundown for people who might not know, which includes me, about the, uh, the Getty kidnapping and what that was? Yeah, uh, basically, uh, there were commanders of uh, usually uh, four or five people who studied the target for even months. Hmm? Uh, they had somehow uh, some uh, accomplices in uh, banks because, uh, of course, they, they knew how wealthy uh, the target was. Uh, 
And then uh, when uh, they studied a good plan, they acted. They kidnapped um, um, the target, which was usually a, a boy or a girl, we should say around 18 years old, 20 years old or something. This could uh, happen anywhere in Italy. And then they managed to uh, carry the target in Calabria and in Aspromonte specifically. And uh, uh, the entire situation was dire because, uh, of course, these people, uh, like Rocco Morabit himself, they knew very well uh, all the uh, most mysterious and uh, uh, secluded valleys and uh, uh, roads up in the mountains. So they could keep... Uh, the the target, uh, the people who they kidnapped for months and months until they had uh, uh, finally a ransom from the family. It was a real war because, of course, then authorities tried to uh, block uh, the money from the family. They raided uh, Aspromonte up and down with uh, helicopters and uh, uh, jeeps and uh, anything you can imagine. Uh, but um, uh, we should say that, especially in the first phase, the Dragata families managed to get lots and lots of money through this activity. It was uh, hard cash. Uh, it was uh, uh, very difficult to uh, um, uh, find where this uh, cash, cash was stashed. Uh, it was very difficult to free uh, the, the hostages. And we should imagine that once an hostage was brought to Aspromonte, you had entire villages who were collaborating to keep the hostage away. Mm? Yeah. And in the end, they accumulated enough money to make uh, a good jump. Uh, they realized they also had uh, already members of the family who were emigrated to uh, uh, Switzerland uh, with all these uh, uh, great uh, loves to, to, you know, uh, stash your money, hide the money. And they managed to start to reinvest um, the money in uh, the new cocaine trade. Yeah, and, and Getty, for those who don't know, he was one of the uh, the richest men in the world at the time, I think, industrialist or oil baron, and uh, known for being really cheap and, and frugal. And, you know, there were some weird negotiations with the kidnappers and all that. So it was a giant, giant news story, those kidnappings. Um, and Rocco Morbito, was he involved? Like, did his family start out with, uh, with kidnappings? So uh, the Morabito Palamara Bruzzaniti family from Africa Nuovo, Rocco Morabito family, conducted several high-profile kidnappings. Several. But it was never proved that he was directly involved. Although his uh, nickname, uh, uh, Utamunga, refers to his knowledge of the most hidden paths in Aspromonte. And this may imply that he participated to some of these operations. Uh, in fact, his first problems with justice arose in the 80s and were related to extortions and drugs. Um, 
the thing is that Rocco Morabito somehow he, he, he starts to embody the big changes that Drangheta is experiencing between the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s. Because in one of uh, his first arrests, for example, he was threatening a university professor for some public procurement business, okay? And he was, caught, he was uh, arrested uh, in a rather peculiar company because uh, it was with uh, a certain Hassan and Walid Kamais. These are not Israel names. In fact, these mm. two people are two militants of the Palestinian Liberation Front who were also well-known heroin traffickers. So he was 20-something, but he was really very ambitious and he was cultivating acquaintances that eventually brought him at the top of the transnational narco trade. And uh, it was uh, exactly the same period, uh, and his clan, the Morabito Palamara Bruzzoniti crime family, shifted from kidnappings to the drug trade. They realized that the kidnappings era was over, because uh, uh, the state, the Italian state and the Italian police, the Carabinieri, they finally realized how the kidnappings were, were done. They had to switch to something else to reinvest the hundreds of millions they robbed to the families of the people they kidnapped. And they, according, imagine this, according to some estimates by Italian law enforcement agencies, the Ndrangheta uh, gained approximately 800 billion lira with the kidnappings, Jesus. which is something like uh, $600 million today, which is a good capital, went into the drug market. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. And they did it collectively. Uh, this is another interesting aspect of the Ndrangheta. Mm, it is true that every family uh, does uh, its own business uh, on its own territory. But um, they tend to collaborate uh, when they see that there's uh, uh, much profit to do. So they evolved from street kidnappers to drug barons. And uh, Rocco Morabito had that specific role in this strategy. Yeah, what, uh, what sort of role? Was he kind of the guy who, who negotiated it? What, um, what can you tell us about, about the role that he played in the strategy? Well, uh, he has uh, a certain... Uh, okay, he's charismatic. He's very well known uh, to be... Uh, He's a good soccer. Uh, he might also be a charmer, and uh, he's very good at negotiations. Even if we know that uh, he can be very, very violent when he wants to. Uh, to understand his role, we also have to keep in mind the history. Uh, we have to keep in mind that uh, at the beginning of the 90s, La Cosa Nostra, so the Sicilians, waged the war against uh, Italy, against the state, by killing prosecutors Giovanni Falcone and Paolo Borsellino, our heroes, uh, and uh, they threatened the whole country with mass bombings. And the answer of Italian institutions was very harsh, and eventually led Cosa Nostra to become somehow a shadow of its former power. And this is the historical moment uh, at the beginning of the 90s when the Calabrians made the move and they took over. And Drangheta becomes Italy's number one crime organization, taking over Cosa Nostra. Because while the Sicilians were busy waging this war, 
against institutions, the Calabrians silently somehow expanded their business and directly approached cocaine producers in Colombia and other Latin America countries. The thing is that we Calabrians, we have a, uh, a very long history of immigration across the world, in uh, Canada, in Australia, in the US, and also Argentina and Brazil. So we're hidden among honest immigrants that were always trying to, to uh, improve their lives by migrating in uh, Argentina or Brazil or Australia or whenever, there were always some affiliates to the Ndrangheta that uh, always kept the contacts with the motherland in Calabria through cousins and relatives and so forth. And Rocco Morabito, according to the investigators, uh, activated several channels uh, through some cousins to contact the Colombians, and eventually the, his family, the Molabito Palamara Bruzzaniti, started to import the Cali cartel cocaine in Italy and in the rest of Europe. So Rocco moved to Milan at the beginning of the 90s, and he somehow started to become uh, more sophisticated. Uh, he, he has always been a charmer, but he started to become more sophisticated. He abandoned all the old simple clothes from Aspromonte. He starts to wear stylish jackets and coats. And uh, uh, some investigators uh, say that his only regret is the accent. Uh, because even if now in Milan he looks hip, when he opens his mouth, you can spot him as a Calabrian in one instant. But you have to imagine Milan in the uh, the 90s. It was the era of Armani and Versace, the supermodels, the football stars of uh, AC Milan and Inter Milan. And the thing is that the whole city was packed with cocaine users. <laughs> and uh, what Rocco Morabito did and uh, his family, the Morabito Palamara Bruzzaniti did, was uh, to take over um, a very strategic hub, which is the Orto Mercato. The Automercato is one of the biggest agricultural markets in Europe. It's somehow, you have to imagine a town within a town. Miles and miles of containers and shops where every night tons and tons of goods are delivered and uh, then distributed between the north of Italy and Switzerland, Austria, the south of Germany and so forth. So the Morabitos, they infiltrated the Automercato. They posed as businessmen involved in the agro-trade. They set up legit companies and turned the Ortomercato into a cocaine hub. And Rocco Morabito is at the forefront of this strategy. He negotiated with the affiliates to the Cosa Nostra and the Camorra. He threatened those who didn't want to cooperate with the Ndrangheta. And he cultivated stable connections with the Latin American narcos. And uh, at 28, he was able to speak face-to-face -face with members of the Cali cartel, as some sort of the Drangheta ambassador. He's solid, he delivers, he solves problems, and every party involved in the business gets a big return for their investment. He's also very prudent, he's smart, he uses violence only when it is really needed. But when he recurs to violence, he's always merciless and he's very, very, very intimidating. So he's basically not even 30 years old and he's negotiating with the most powerful organized crime groups in the world, like organizing them together. You know, people who don't usually work together, whether it's the Cosa Nostra, the Camorra, the Colombian cartels. I mean, would you say at this point that that in Milan, he's basically become this sort of like uh, 
this this uh, boss this this boss of bosses oh uh this is a complicated question uh but uh it can help us to uh define a bit better the structure of the drangheta um we have to remember this is the structure of some strange secret militia born centuries ago that then evolved into a crime syndicate so uh the is not a top boss but he has a very important role why we say so okay so the basic unit of the drangheta is called the drina and the drina is formed by at least five or six people who are very often relatives if you take several drinas together they form a locale and the locale is uh, a territorial unity with the control of a certain area or a certain town to form a real locale you need the authorization from the top level from the criminal you can go not go to uh, toronto or melbourne and i'm mentioning i'm talking about toronto or melbourne because uh, these two cities they do have a locale on the drangheta but you can go to toronto or melbourne and create a locale because nobody will recognize you and if you apply the drangheta rules without consent you are punished with death so orthodoxy is one of the pillars of the organization now every man every made man within the drangheta has a certain rank and a certain role and the rank and the role must not be confused because roles are often rotating on a regular basis because for example you can be for a while what they call a maestro di giornata which is basically a messenger that connects every member disability communications and orders and then uh, after some months you can take the role of uh, uh, the crimine who is the guy who keeps the weapons in order and then you're back to maestro di giornata or contabile meaning you keep the the sheets in order and so forth but the ranks are based on a growing order so there's a very strict hierarchy and each rank allows you to do certain things that are forbidden to legislative levels uh within the ranks you start as a picciotto which is basically a soldier and you have to follow the oldest uh, strictly and uh then uh, you become uh, uh, a camorrista and sgarrista Now, uh, I know it's very complicated. Picciotto, camorrista, and sgarrista are uh, the rankings within the società minore. The società minore means is the lesser part of the drangheta, uh, which is you do only very uh, street level crime and uh, very dangerous stuff. Uh, you do racketeering. Uh, you uh, deal with drunks on a street level and so forth after these three rankings picciotto camorrista scarrista you can be admitted to the società maggiore let's remember there are people who will never be in their lives admitted to società maggiore but uh, you always have the promise to grow within the, the society and in società maggiore there are several other roles which are uh, santista, vangelo, trequartino, quartino and finally padrino. Ora uh, while you are in the, the società minore you cannot talk at all with people outside the drangheta with public roles. 
You cannot talk, for example, with state employees or attorneys and so forth. Once you are in a società maggiore, as a member of the Drangheta, you have the license to infiltrate all the environments of society. You can talk with cops, you can join a Freemasonry lodge, uh, you can uh, uh, join politicians. But you always have to remember that your loyalty goes only to the Ndrangheta and that all, all the people you met, meet outside the Ndrangheta, uh, you always have to use them as tools for the benefit of the Ndrangheta. So to answer to your question, uh, it is sure that Rocco Morabito reached the Società Maggiore and probably his rank is somewhere between Vangelo and Trequartino, which is very high. But uh, he never turned, uh, he never managed to become the leader of a family because the leader of his family uh, is one of his uncles, uh, Giuseppe Morabito, a.k.a. Tiradritto, means a straight shooter. And Tiradritto, his uncle, uh, was also a very legendary boss. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Because straight shooter is just—that's a great mafia nickname, right there. Or, or, uh, yeah, you know, and John okay. get that nickname, I would say. Yeah. Okay. Um, straight shooter. Uh, I'll give you another great legendary nickname, which is uh, his brother, which is uh, uh, also another uncle of Rocco Morabito, and uh, is uh, Leo Morabito, nicknamed Scassaporte which means uh, uh, door crusher, because uh, <laughs> it w- okay, so you know, you can understand the type. But anyway, Giuseppe Morabito, Tiradetto, uh, he's a legendary boss because um, uh, he's basically the one who managed to uh, conquer the Orto Mercato in Milan and uh, to, uh, of course, with the help of uh, his nephew, uh, Rocco, to get in touch with uh, the Cali cartel and uh, the, other, um, the other Latin American cartels. Uh, he was uh, very feared. Um, he, uh, when he was, uh, finally arrested, he was sentenced to, uh, a life sentence. And, uh, um, he was, uh, basically, uh, also, um, sentenced to a very harsh, uh, J regime. He could not talk to the outside and so forth because, uh, um, the Italian authorities knew that uh, he was able to, uh, continue to, uh, hold uh, murders and other activities, even from, uh, from jail. And, uh, uh, he was called straight shooter because, uh, of course, yes, Tiradritto, he was very well known to be a straight shooter. He was uh, very dangerous with uh, fire weapons and uh, uh, everybody knew that uh, he had to shoot you only once, actually. <laughs> But so Rocco at this point becomes like the cocaine king of Milan, I think they called him. What yeah. um where does he go from there? Because he they, they go after him, yeah, pretty hard. They go after him pretty hard. They go after the whole uh the whole family pretty hard. Um uh there's uh, a huge investigation 
which is called first uh, uh, Fortaleza, and uh, then uh, it uh, it will be it will have several names, and uh, the basically the um, the Italian Carabinieri and the Italian Police and the Italian Guardia di Finanza they realized that uh, um, the uh, Orto Mercato was turning into a hub for cocaine, uh, the, that they had to look for. Um, the Morabito uh, Palamara Bruzzaniti family. They arrested uh, basically the highest rankings of the family and uh, even all the Picciotto Giornata uh, in a huge operation in 1994. Um, uh, they also arrested uh, uh, Tiradritto, the uh, straight shooter, but uh, Rocco is one of the few who manages to uh, to run away? Uh, he had a, a very um, uh, very good apartment uh, in the outskirts of Milan. Uh, that morning, when uh, the operation is uh, uh, is running, the the police and the carabinieri are conducting the operation. They um, bump. You have to imagine. Uh, at least uh, 50 officials uh, they <laughs> crashed the doors of, uh, of, his, uh, of his apartment and they found it empty and he disappears and uh, after a year uh, in 1995 he um, has been uh, named one of the 10 uh, fugitives one of the most dangerous, ten most dangerous fugitives of Italy. Uh, they, he was charged with, uh, of course, um, cocaine trafficking. They already knew that um, uh, he had some links to Brazil because in 1992 he was spotted with. Uh, um, he was responsible for the. Um, uh, basically, the uh, a very if I don't remember badly, it was like around 600 kilos of cocaine, uh, the transport from Brazil to Italy, again with uh, uh, Walid Isa Kamais, who was uh, his partner from uh, the Palestinian Liberation Front. And um, they, uh, the Italian investigators, somehow they realized that uh, his uh, links to Brazil were very, very tight. Um, then he totally disappears. Uh, the investigators, they suspect that he has uh, some very good connection in, uh, um, in Latin America. And by very good connection, we mean uh, uh, somebody who managed to forge him or also to give him uh, some political, some uh, sorry, some diplomatic passport. He disappears. Uh, he disappears for uh, more than twenty-five years. But from time to time, he always have the um, the sensation that uh, he was behind uh, this uh, huge um, uh, traffic of cocaine uh, from uh, uh, certain. Ports of uh, uh, Latin America, especially in uh, Brazil, Uruguay, and Paraguay, and Italy. 
and also from this port to certain uh, ports of Europe because uh, uh, the um, uh, he had also taken contact with uh, other Drangheta families like uh, i Pellevottari from uh, San Luca, uh, i Mancuso di Limbadi. We are talking about the, the real aristocracy of Drangheta somehow. So he was like the... Um, you mentioned, you said uh, he was like, uh, for, for a while, he was the uh, king of cocaine in Milan, true. But uh, uh, by managing to escape... Uh, from uh, the arrest in 1994, he managed to become somehow the uh, king of cocaine between two worlds, between Europe and uh, Latin America. Um, the interesting thing is that uh, um, after um, the, he, he was somehow spotted uh, between Uruguay, between Montevideo, they in every time uh, the Italian authorities tried to uh, to reach him, there was always some mistake, which uh, somehow led to the suspicion that he was uh, very highly protected from some uh, political um, uh, authority in uh, one of those countries. Uh, but uh, then he totally disappeared. Uh, they never found his uh, whole identity again. Uh, they somehow suspect that uh, he had uh, several um, identities, uh, at least one identity for each one of these nations, Uruguay, Paraguay, Brazil, and Argentina. We have to remember that this is um, uh, also an area where, um, especially Uruguay, where all these um, uh, Latin American countries border. And he was able to move across all these borders and uh, to forge uh, new, uh, uh, new relationships with uh, new clans from uh, Brazil, and uh, uh, from uh, Paraguay and so forth. And then, finally, after 23 years uh, on, uh, on the run, he was arrested on the 4th of September in 2017. Yeah, and then he was in and out, right? Didn't he escape from, from, from prison for a minute? Yeah, that, that was incredible. Uh, so it was a very... Um, it was a very well-designed operation. Uh, you had um, people from uh, the Uruguayan police, you had people from the Argentinian police, and you had uh, um, people from the Carabinieri who were there on the field in Montevideo. It was uh, uh, a rainy evening. Uh, they identified him. Uh, he had a very um, stylish villa uh, on the outskirts of Montevideo in Punta del Este, which is basically, I wouldn't say a gated community, but it's uh, a very high-class uh, neighborhood outside, um, outside Montevideo. But uh, it seems, uh, because um, he had uh, some sort of quarrel with uh, his wife, we will be back to his wife later, uh, he decided to, uh, to sleep into an hotel in Montevideo. 
so they followed him. Uh, they um, kicked the door of uh, of his uh, old room, and uh, he tried to show this um, uh, passport um, named Francisco Antonio Capelletto Souza. Um, uh, which was some uh, uh, Brazilian um, businessman under the identity of who he was living for years and years. But then uh, they took his DNA and uh, from Italy they confirmed he was Rocco Morabito. He was arrested, he was led to um, a Norwegian prison and he spent there like one year the Italian authorities were uh, um, asking for extradition. For some bizarre reason, the Uruguayan authorities didn't want to give the extradition to the Italian authorities. And then on the night of the 24th of June 2019, after more than one year uh, in, um, uh, in prison, almost two years actually, he managed to escape with three other people. Uh, he managed to escape actually from the roof of uh, the uh, Carcere Central de Montevideo. Uh, he jumped from um, from uh, from the rooftop. Of course, he was. Uh, he then they discovered that he had some help from the inside of the prison. Uh, he already had a car outside. who was waiting for him, and he disappeared again. That was 2019, and uh, the Italian authorities, as you can imagine, were baffled and enraged because uh, uh, it was the, at that time it was the uh, most, uh, the second most dangerous uh, fugitive for Italian justice. And they, meaning, the number one was uh, Matteo Messina Denaro, and Rocco Morabito was the number two. And uh, they also had new uh, evidence, they had new investigations. They knew that, for example, uh, lots of other uh, Calabrian families, uh, like uh, I Bellocco uh, della Piana di Gioia Tauro, uh, were uh, importing uh, cocaine due to uh, Rocco Morabito's great connections. Um, but it disappeared again until finally in uh, 2021, uh, it was the end of May, uh, the 24th of May, uh, in uh, the capital of the uh, João um, Pessoa State in Paraíba, so we are in uh, Brazil. Uh, finally, i Carabinieri del Rosso, which is a raggruppamento Operativo Speciale, il Reparto Brasile Speciale, which is uh, the elite of the Carabinieri, together with uh, um, the other collaboration of the FBI and um, the DEA and uh, the, um, the Polizia Brasiliana, they managed to find him. He had already uh, changed identity, of course, and uh, they realized somehow that uh, his wife might have been uh, linked to... Uh, some family of uh, very prominent um, Brazilian uh, diplomats, and they arrested him. And this time, uh, the Brazilians, um, um, uh, unlike the Uruguayans, uh, gave uh, the extradition very easily. Uh, in uh, so the twenty fifth of May, 
2022, uh, a year after, less than a year after, uh, Rocco Morabito was finally returned to the Italian justice, and now the king of cocaine of the two worlds um, is facing a life sentence in uh, in a Calabrian uh, in a Calabrian. Um, Jail. I know somebody that um, uh, a law enforcement official who um, uh, was on a plane that uh, went from Italy to uh, Brazil to 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 catch Rock Morabito. Uh, so they spent many many hours together, um, and uh, this law enforcement official told me that um, he was a very quiet. Uh, very uh, apparently he was very gentle um, he didn't talk that much but he always had uh, the old attitude of a real Ndrangheta man which is you um it is not just that you do not talk to the police. You treat them like they are uh, no real human beings. They are something different because you are Andrangetista and uh, they are something um, law enforcement officials and uh, uh, people from the state. Uh, they... Uh, somehow are part of a different species of beings than you. <laughs> it's really old school right there. Um, can you tell us a bit about what it's like first, you know, you grew up like not just in, in the area, but like in the towns where these guys came from. So when you're growing up there, I mean, are you seeing friends from school or, you know, the fathers of your friends that are involved? And then to go from that where, you know, they probably know you, right? You grew up around them to being a reporter on what they're doing. I mean, that sounds like it's extremely dangerous. Uh, so I grew up in, yes, in this sort of environment. I think I can understand what, what was going on. Uh, mm, my family... Uh, always took a different decision and uh, uh, decided to lead a different kind of life. And there are many Calabrian families who did this. Um, uh, yes, me if it's not dangerous. You know, the thing is that uh, the Ndrangheta has evolved. Um, they knew that I wrote this book. Uh, they knew what uh, I was working on somehow, but um, I wouldn't say that I fear for my um, uh, for my health. Mm, uh, what when I say that they evolved, the thing is that they found uh, uh, many uh, ways and more dangerous somehow ways to. Uh, uh, to hit you. So uh, you have had lots of cases of people who, for example, have been uh, uh, smeared. Uh, they can put you cocaine into your house and then uh, they can uh, um, uh, call the police for a ride and uh, uh, your reputation is over. Uh, 
they can involve you into some uh, financial scheme even if you don't know that and uh, your reputation is over and so forth uh, so I think that this is the thing that scares me most so if uh, one day uh, I don't know uh, uh, they will find some cocaine uh, in my apartment or they will claim that I stole some money yeah? Uh, yeah. Listen to this podcast. Uh, it's false. <laughs> it's all false accusations. This is yeah. the way that the drangheta acts now against people who uh, opposite the drangheta. Uh, they understand that if they uh, shoot somebody and there's a corpse, um, this makes lots of noise. If you smear the reputation of somebody and uh, leave them to face uh, legal problems for years and years, uh, the problem is over. And you didn't, ma- didn't have to do much noise about that. Damn. Yeah, I mean, they, they've clearly wised up. But um, yeah, th- I mean, that was great, man. What, uh, so wait, I, I, I didn't understand at first. Is your book available in English right now or are... Is, no. it, is there a translation? No, not for the moment. I hope there will be a translation soon. Uh, for the moment, it has been translated into French and uh, German and Hungarian and uh, Polish. Well, we should get it here, man. I mean, there's enough book publishers that listen to this. And it's all about your experience, A, growing up with the Andrangheta and then reporting on them as well. And it sounds like a mm. history too. No, not really. But yes, I start yeah. with some family history, but then uh, yeah. it is about uh, the Andrangheta itself and how it grew uh, in uh, Toronto, in Melbourne, and uh, in uh, how uh, the Andrangheta manages to uh, do some money laundering in Hong Kong, for example, how they strike some deals with uh, El Cartel del Golfo in New York City. But uh, then everything in the book leads back to 104 kilometers, which are these 104 kilometers of the Route 106, which is the title of the book, because this is the cradle of the phenomenon. And even if uh, uh, there's uh, some uh, huge drug deal in Melbourne or uh, in uh, Toronto, or there's a war in Toronto or Montreal, uh, if you go back to the family names, all the family names trace back to this route 106. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing, man. I hope someone here smartens up, someone listening to us and publishes it in English in the uh, in the States. Um, yeah, that was great. Tell people, where can they find you? Where can they reach out to you or email you? Where are you on social media? Yes, I'm on Twitter, uh, Antonio Talia, A-N-T-O-N-I-O-T-A-L-I-A, or on uh, Instagram. My Instagram is uh, Antonio Talia 77 Awesome, man. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, what's the title of the book again? Route, Route, uh, 100, Route 106. Awesome. All right. Thanks. And everyone else, uh, you know, tune in next week. Sean will be back. And as always, patreon.com slash underworld podcast. Uh, email us at the underworld podcast at Gmail. You can subscribe on iTunes with one click and, uh, you know, all that other good stuff. 